I want to welcome Dr. Samir Sinha to the show. Uh, Dr. Sinha has been on the show before, and I think last time we spoke was um, about a month ago, Dr. Sinha. You are an expert in the field of geriatrics, and it is a pleasure to have you back on the show, although it's not for a great topic of conversation, but I always appreciate your time. No, thanks, Kelly. So we last spoke about a month ago, as I said, and I at that time... Only, I think it was only a week ago, but it felt like a no, month ago. Come on. No, I, I think it, it actually was a little bit longer than that. I Because I listened to the interview again, and I was a bit floored on how, you know, the stance has changed and even your opinions changed in the last, you know, three weeks. So let's let's give it three weeks. So when we last spoke, an 80-year-old man in B.C. had passed away from complications with COVID-19. And closing long-term care homes to visitors was not even on the radar yet. And one of the things that struck me in that interview is you said that loneliness and isolation were bigger threats to seniors. Now, last week, you were quoted in a Globe and Mail article as saying, seniors' homes are much like cruise ships, except without the luxury. They are Petri dishes. And if my mom was in long-term care, I would pull her out now with a capital N. So, what went terribly so terribly wrong in the long-term care system when it comes to COVID-19? Because obviously your stance has changed in a matter of, you know, three weeks. Well, I think it's, it's, this has been a challenge right across the country. We've seen that uh, compared to three weeks ago when we had only a handful of homes in outbreak, we have over 500 homes or 600 or seven even 100 homes now in outbreak. Uh, I know in Ontario alone, we were about 12 about a week ago, and now we have over 70 or even 90 now that are in outbreak. And I think this, this is the challenge right now is that um, every province uh, and territory organizes their care in nursing and retirement homes differently. Um, and some of this has created vulnerabilities. Some provinces had not actually um, limited visitations uh, from family members um, until more recently. Others had been more proactive on that. Um, and some homes, they really have staffing challenges. And so it's really made it, um, it's really created or opened up some of the vulnerabilities that we're seeing in some locations. So uh, in some areas where, for example, we're not actually promoting the masking of uh, staff to uh, prevent the asymptomatic transmission of COVID from them to their residents or them to each other. Um, and in other circumstances where we haven't been doing the aggressive testing of, of potentially affected residents uh, when there's actually a case, um, it's allowed or it could allow, for example, as the science is evolving, us to be missing cases and actually the spread to get worse. So, you know, I'm not saying for everybody in every situation that this is, you know, the right thing to do. And, and by no means, I'm not trying to be glib about this. I'm just saying that if people are worried about their loved ones in long-term care, I think they're justified to be worried. And I think the key is it's good to ask questions. Is my home masking? Um, is the government doing what they can to support people um, in our homes um, uh, as best as possible? And, and how do we make sure that we're keeping our loved ones as safe as possible? And if not, you know, do I have the ability to bring my person home um, so I can better support them. Global News obtained a document from health officials sent to long-term care homes saying that seniors in nursing homes should be kept comfortable if they contract COVID-19 and not taken to the hospital and that there's little that can be done beyond comforting measures. To me, that sounds like we are preparing uh, people, staff that work with older uh, patients in long-term care homes to basically um, allow them to pass away as comfortably as, as possible. 
I don't know about that document, and I um, I have no clue which government is thinking about that. But if a government was thinking about that, I'd highly advise them against that. Um, because number one, for example, these are human beings. Um, this is a sector where it houses our most vulnerable people who are often hidden away from society, and their workers tend to be undervalued compared to, say, hospital workers. That's, that's the key point. Um, and so we should not be discriminating the care that needs to be provided to any Canadian um, based on... Um, where they live or how old they are, their vulnerabilities. And so I know that in Ontario, for example, we know that our hospitals could be overwhelmed, but we know that if an individual in a home contracts COVID, for example, their chance of dying is upwards of 33%. But dying of COVID right now, the dispatches I'm hearing from the front lines, it's not pleasant. You're gasping for air. You'll be in pain. You need access to potentially um, to fluids, um, some IV fluids. You potentially need access to hydration. Um, you also need, you may need access to hydromorphone. And right now in some of the communities, there's shortages of those. So even if someone needed to make sure that they just got the basic care, we're not talking about getting a, on a ventilator, but just making sure they had a dignity and support. Many homes aren't equipped to provide that. And so we shouldn't deny that level of care support to individuals. If we can provide it in their own homes, great. But if we can't, we need to bring them to hospital to provide them that care. Um, and we shouldn't deny anybody access to the care that they have a right to, as any of the rest of us do as well. We're speaking with Dr. Samir Sinha. Doctor, um, yesterday I had on uh, a, a, another doctor talking about how he'd worked with an economist and they had uh, put together this op-ed on four lessons to uh, that we can learn from COVID-19 and this pandemic. One of the lessons is the fact that we are just, the long-term care system is broken and we need to fix it. Can you describe how the, the chronic understaffing of long-term care facilities has it has actually facilitated the the spread of covid-19 yeah, and again, the challenge is, is that hospital care and primary care in our country, they're all enshrined under the Canada Health Act, right? So so those things are pretty stable and you're not hearing about these issues. But nursing homes and retirement homes are all governed completely differently depending on the province and territory you live in. So every single province or territory, it's different. And that's why you're seeing some jurisdictions seem to be faring better than others, if you will, as well. But right now, I mean, the, the typical challenges we see are that the folks who are providing the same care that you would find in a hospital, for example, so the same types of workers, nurses or personal support workers, are often paid a heck of a lot less. Um, they're often not given full-time employment with benefits and sick days. So imagine this. Now, if you um, have to miss a day of work at one of these homes uh, where you don't have benefits or sick days, would you try and come in and work through it? Or would you, or would you take the alternative of staying home and not getting paid and not putting food on your table? So we have a very vulnerable workforce supporting a very vulnerable population. And I think this is why BC made the extreme move just a week or two ago as, as it started seeing outbreaks in many of its homes to say, we've got to stop this. We've got to pay these workers properly. Um, we have to give them full-time work. We have to do this because this is just a clear example of how we built a system in some cases to um, fail, you know, its residents. Um, and so we're going to have to figure these things out, you know, not only now, but moving forward. But I think the other things we need to do is as COVID's a fast moving beast, as we're learning, as we're going, we need to make sure that we're updating the best protocols for testing, um, for prevention with masking, for example, and making sure that we're doing the best we can in every home across the country, even though these are all provincial and territorial decisions. 
I, I got an email from a listener named Jeff, and I just want to um, read it to you because I thought it was an interesting take on his opinion on why seniors homes seem to be getting hit so hard. He says, uh, I'm not hearing this talked about, but I've been a, a service tech for over 30 years. I've had to go through a few outbreaks like SARS, MERS, neuro, uh, norovirus, etc. Every time there was one of those outbreaks, rules were in place. They prevented us from going into a medical, seniors, or hospital facility for 30 days. If uh, we had been in one of those buildings, you were allowed to go in the same one, but not any other one. That was not allowed. As bad as this pandemic is, I've yet to hear anyone enacting similar, similar rules or protocols. Something that often gets missed is that depending on the industry you're in, you can get called into multiple buildings in a day. And for my trade, as an example, I can be in as many as eight to 10 buildings in a day. If I'm on the overnight call tech, if I'm on that 32 hour shift, that number can be more than double. Techs often have to interact with multiple people on one site, which makes the risk of us passing something on very large. That to me speaks to that, uh, you know, uh, the iron ring that Ford is trying to put around our vulnerable people that are in these long-term care facilities and how difficult it is to crack down because there's so many different holes in the bucket, um, you know, to use an analogy where, you know, this virus can get in. Yeah, this is this is a challenge, right? You know, the iron ring is only so solid in, in some ways. And, and this is not, you know, this is not a knock at the premier or anybody else, right? It's just, it, you know, we're now realizing or actually seeing how vulnerable the system can be, especially when you have to imagine that for those who are living in retirement homes, for example, you'll have actually staff in the home who provide care to some of the residents. But residents have the right, you know, because they're under a landlord tenancy agreement, really, um, to hire their own private care workers to come in. Um, to them because it might be cheaper and more affordable, or they might actually still be receiving government-funded home care services. So we have one home, for example, that has 250 residents. They have 40 workers in the home. They have 40 workers from outside the home coming in every day. Um, And then there's also private care workers. So there's a lot of foot traffic that we can easily limit in a hospital where we control all of our own staff, but you can't really do that, especially in a retirement home. Hence, a lot of that foot traffic, a lot of that uh, uh, makes it quite challenging. And for techs, for example, who might be working between multiple homes, um, that's that's a real challenge because sometimes you have to go to multiple homes because you don't have enough work in one home during the day. So the, so what the government has done is they've actually enacted you know emergency orders asking, um, they can't mandate, but they've really asked homes, and a lot of homes have been doing this, to try and say, if I've got a staff member who's part-time here and part-time there, or also doing some home care shifts on the side, we're really trying to ask people to limit their activities. But again, for someone who's underpaid and is working part-time at three things, and now you're saying, okay, you can only do some work here and not other places, unless you can actually say, well, why don't you take these other two people's part-time shifts here? We'll give you full-time work with benefits. Because this is the whole thing, right? You know, you're taking a vulnerable uh, workforce. um, You're almost putting them potentially in more vulnerable situations. And so I know a lot of homes across Ontario have actually been looking at how do we give people bonuses, full-time work, full-time benefits, you know, recognizing these vulnerabilities to try and stabilize things because otherwise we're now starting to see homes in outbreak where the staff are off sick, other people don't want to come in, um, and it's now creating problems for even just maintaining the basic care levels that these vulnerable people need. I just want to touch on a story that's uh, breaking now, Pinecrest Nursing Home. 
uh, which was besieged by COVID-19, they apparently didn't separate healthy from sick residents of their staff uh, or staff until after 16 people had died. Two weeks after the home declared a respiratory outbreak. And um, they also kind of uh, fudged the um, the claim that they were separating patients. Apparently they weren't because they didn't have the ability because the, the uh, facility is so small. Do you think we're going to end up seeing um, a rethink in the way we um, it, we run these facilities as far as no more ward rooms, you know, where you've got four people to a room? Are we going to have to look at a, 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 tol- a totally new infrastructure model for long-term care? Yeah, it's tough, right? I mean, I can't comment specifically on what happened at Pinecrest. I mean, my heart goes out to the staff and the residents there because, you know, again, they're all working in a much older facility, if you will, that has four and two bedded rooms, right? And in many of these situations, if someone is sick in a four bedded room, it's sometimes hard to isolate other people. But I'm working on a committee right now supporting the provincial government to make sure that we're using the best latest available guidance um, to help prevent, you know, um, you know, us, uh, um, uh, you know, making mistakes, for example, that uh, uh, that that might affect the well-being of individuals. So we're learning better as we're going, if you will, with the latest evidence that's coming out daily about, you know, being aware of asymptomatic people or atypical presentations, because until a few weeks ago, the guidance was really only separate out symptomatic people and only test mm-hmm. symptomatic people. And now we're realizing that we probably should be testing asymptomatic and other people, trying to isolate everybody in an outbreak situation, um, even people who look um, absolutely normal. So I don't think anybody um, anywhere is trying to do the wrong thing or or behaving poorly. Um, And I really think, you know, again, um, everybody's trying to do the best they can, but I certainly am now, I've been commandeered to help work on some new guidance um, um, that the Chief Medical Officer of Health wants from experts um, around the province so that we can make sure that we can take the latest evidence that's literally coming out every day and saying, okay, what are some of the new policies and guidance we can put in place so we can best support people living in long-term care homes? Because we don't, I'm, you know, you know, if yeah, but if, if I could just state, cut in for a second, doctor, though, yeah. I mean, it doesn't instill a lot of faith in the institution that your parents are in. If you you realize that, you know, the home's administrator has said something that simply is not true and didn't happen. Like, I think at this time we need full on transparent communication because people's lives depend on it. And those people should have known that they, you know, that this was not actually the case so that they could take out. Uh, a healthy parent or loved one. I I know that um, I'm I'm running out of clock here. I just want to ask you very quickly, uh, Doctor Samir. I I retweeted something that you tweeted last three days ago, and it said I stopped the car and wept last night. It was after midnight. I was driving home from another 18-hour day at Sinai Health and UHN, and then I saw this. Thank you to my city of Toronto and its residents. It's citizens for acts of love that are keeping its frontline health workers going strong. The photo underneath is, you know, a darkened, empty street. And somewhere in the light of the buildings, there is a heart with an H inside it all lit up. I guess they, they you know, strategically lit up several windows in a building. Tell me how important these things are for healthcare workers. I want to talk about you for a second as, as we close here and how difficult fighting this pandemic is. 
Well, you can imagine things are changing daily. My life is drastically different. You know, three weeks ago, it'll be drastically different, you know, tomorrow and three weeks from now. Um, we're all under stress. We're all anxious. Um, none of us want to see anybody hurt by this pandemic. Um, and so this weighs on us, right? This conversation, right? It points out that we're, you know, we're doing the best we can. And and my, and my I don't want to see anything like another Pinecrest happen. Um, I know the minister doesn't um, as well. And that's why we're almost on daily calls, helping each other out, figuring out what are the next steps we can do. So I'm putting, I'm working full out. My colleagues are all working full out. Um, and so when you have a moment to pause, because, you know, it's just crazy making in the hospitals and everywhere else right now, and you're, you're driving out and you see, you know, a heart symbol in a, in, in a, in a bank of hotel rooms with the H, the hospital symbol right there as you're driving back. And it's facing all of our hospitals up on University Avenue. Um, to me, that was just a big thank you. It's just saying, we know what you're up to. We support you. And I can't tell you enough how it's not just the folks in the hospital. It's the folks in the grocery store. It's my first responder colleagues. It's everybody working in a nursing and retirement home. It's every family that's worrying about their loved ones and people who are reaching out and helping older people. Um, that's perhaps the greatest thing that I'm seeing is how many people are coming together um, and trying to get all this right. So um, I, I honestly, it moved me when I saw that because I, it was totally unexpected. I didn't ask for that. None of us asked for that. But I can tell you that if people are wondering, does anybody notice these, these little acts of love? We do. And honestly, we might not even have enough time to stop and say thank you. But if anybody's listening out there, thank you. Um, just thank you. Dr. Sena, it's it's always a pleasure to have you be so generous with your time. I thank you so much for all the work that you and your colleagues do. And um, it's been a pleasure having you on the show again. And, and let's talk again soon. Thank you very much, Kelly.